Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports and we interview the author. This week my guest is political scientist Jennifer Ring. We are discussing her book, Stolen Bases, Why American Girls Don't Play Baseball, published by the University of Illinois Press. For the last four years, I've coached a team for my local Little League Baseball Association. For a couple of those years, two of the players on my team were girls, my daughter and another girl named Maria. Overall, the girls enjoyed being part of a team of boys, and I appreciated having them on the team. My daughter was a dependable catcher and first baseman, while Maria was the engine of the offense. In one season, she had a batting average of 800, and with her fast, smart, and aggressive running, she was a threat to score every time she got on base. But despite my naive belief that baseball was finally open to girls, and despite the declared openness of the league, there were episodes which showed me that girls playing baseball was still something unusual, even something frowned upon. For example... When signing up my daughter for the league, the online registration site automatically placed her in the local softball league when I marked her gender as female. Only after calls to league officials was she switched to baseball. Maria, meanwhile, was the first girl in league history to earn a coveted spot on the all-star team. But in the team's games, Maria was played for only one inning, and then she was put on the bench. Despite her ability at the plate and on the bases, she was the only player on the team to get the required minimum amount of playing time in every game. Jenny Ring's daughter had similar experiences in her baseball career. From Little League up to high school, she endured slights from coaches, players, and parents, as well as explicit opposition to her playing. These experiences led Jenny, as a scholar, to ask the question, why is it that girls can't play baseball? 
as she discovered in her research, and as we talk about in the interview, the history of baseball reveals a purposeful exclusion of girls. And even though the expansion of athletics in the last four decades has opened a wide range of sports to girls and women, baseball in America remains closed. Jenny's findings were eye-opening. And based on my own experience in youth baseball, I found myself agreeing with much of what she said. I enjoyed our conversation about the book, so let's turn to the interview. Jenny, welcome to New Books and Sports. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, it's a pleasure, Bruce. So I'll ask you first to introduce yourself. You're a political scientist by training. Can you tell us a bit about your your academic background and some of the work that you've done? Well, I am, I'm a political scientist. I was um, uh, got my undergraduate degree at UCLA and my uh, master's and doctorate degree from Berkeley um, in the 70s got, and uh, have taught at several places. I'm actually trained as a political theorist and um, was also uh, invited after I uh, finished my degree in Berkeley to begin teaching courses there on women in politics and um, race and gender in politics. And I think it was because uh, I was available and uh, it was a new field at that point. And it, it certainly opened my eyes to uh, uh, an area of study that uh, as a classically trained political theorist from Berkeley or, you know, traditionally trained, um, I didn't know about. And I, uh, I've been teaching um, American politics, women in politics, race and gender in politics, along with uh, traditional political philosophy um, at various places, at, at Berkeley and Stanford for a while, and then I, I received tenure from the University of South Carolina and uh, came back uh, to the University of Nevada, Reno, to begin a women's studies program here, and I've been here for about uh, 15 years. I started the program and then returned to the political science department. And you're also a great baseball fan as well. Yes, that uh, predates any academic training. (laughs) (laughs) So one thing I liked about your book from the start is that in the acknowledgement section, you identify not only your own fan allegiance, but also the favorite team of just about every other person you thanked for the in helping with the book, which which gave me the sense as a reader uh, from that section that this was a book motivated by a love of baseball. Yes, this this was a, a book of the heart uh, from start to finish. I you know I think I I began writing it um, when my younger daughter. Um, who is uh, an athlete and a baseball lover and just has been from the time she was about three years old. I I mentioned in the book that I think there's some kind of baseball gene and you either have it or you don't have it. And if you have it, it's hard to explain to people who don't have it. Um, But it's uh, the love of the game is something just primal. And uh, so my younger daughter and my husband, I guess, you know, um, maybe the, the strange thing is that my older girl uh, likes baseball, but really, you know, isn't that involved. And the younger one just wanted to play baseball from the time she was about three years old. And uh, she played in the little league. She's uh, both a natural, uh, you know, gifted ball player and a hard worker um, and willing to be coached. And um, she ran into trouble. Uh, after Little League when she was facing uh, tremendous 
cultural pressure to switch to softball, and she didn't want to. And by the time she was uh, getting ready to try out for the freshman team at at her high school, um, I was looking at what she was facing and the kind of discouragement and the the pressure from parents and coaches and not not her teammates, not the boys she was playing with, but you know how is it that she's still the only girl still meaning that I was also i you know I grew up at a time before girls even were allowed into little league it was before the nineteen seventy three lawsuits so here's my kid, you know three decades later, more than three decades later, and she uh she's having the same trouble staying in the game past Little League, and uh, so I began writing at that point because um, I was outraged and protective, and as a as someone with the baseball gene myself and recognizing it in her, I, you know, I knew, um, I just, I couldn't explain why in an age when women's equality has made such strides, it isn't a complete yet, but it's certainly different than when I was growing up and after Title IX has passed, why it's still so difficult for um, a girl to play the national pastime and to take it seriously and to move beyond just kind of childish um, recreational play. And she wanted to be a high school player. She wanted to take it as far as she could. So that's when I began writing the book, when um, she was facing her real... um, opposition that's there's no other word to say it i mean she was facing social and cultural opposition to the idea of her playing baseball which it seemed incredible to me so with the experience of your daughter you came to realize that there is this this deliberate exclusion of girls and women from baseball and then much of the book is devoted to this question of of why why are girls today excluded from the game as they reach higher levels of competition and why in in your day were girls excluded entirely from organized baseball and so you begin with history to find out if this was always the case and so i want to start here and and i was surprised to read that this was not always the case that girls and women regularly played baseball in the 19th and into the early 20th centuries um yes they did and even um before that, I mean, that's in, in the United States, certainly. I mean, there's uh, kind of a scholarly agreement that uh, baseball, or the earliest forms of it, uh, w- was a girls' game in England. And uh, it was, uh, you know, there were a number of, of, uh, of different versions of it, kind of localized versions. And, and um, uh, it was called rounders. It was called baseball. There was a, uh, an early version called um, stool ball that was apparently invented by milkmaids in their time between milkings, um, you know, where they're bored and they don't have anything to do. And they put their milking stools in a circle and one stood in the middle and served or pitched um, either a cricket ball or a rock sometimes at one of the other girls who would hit it with um, a stick or a, a, a rolling pin or, you know, something and uh, run around the bases, and the fielders uh, would attempt to get her out by throwing the rock or the cricket ball at her as she ran. So, you know, I mean, it's it's not exactly a delicate feminine sport for uh, little milkmaids. Um, And so there were predecessors. I mean, there's there's, um, plenty of evidence that girls spontaneously um, came to the game that we now know as baseball, and that when it when baseball first arrived on American shores, which was uh, 
long before this myth of Abner Doubleday um, uh, drawing a baseball diamond in a uh, in a dirt field with a stick, um, girls and boys and um, love they just responded to this new game that emerged. And um, it, it, there's a, not a clear moment when baseball was invented in the United States. It probably emerged because there were English immigrants here who brought it with them. Or it's the kind of game that kids will make up. It's, you know, it's not that complicated, but it evolved. And by the middle of the 19th century, it was being played by everybody who could play it. You know, all races, all classes, um, all genders, um, girls played, boys played, so, yeah, I, I uh, argue in the book that basically girls and women had to be shoved off America's diamonds. They were already there. And, um, uh, it, you know, it took it took some doing to get them off. And I discuss the reasons for that in the book. Yeah, and that's what I'm going to ask next. Because looking at the history of women's exclusion from the game, it wasn't, wasn't a gradual process. It was, like you say, a, a shoving off. In many instances, women and girls were banned from playing baseball quite deliberately and quite explicitly. Yes, and it was, it was you know, they would get shoved off and they would come back. I mean, they wouldn't stay gone, which, you know, shows you something about the love of the game or the baseball gene or whatever, you know, we're, we're calling it. Um, I associate it, uh, you know, the, the kind of official exclusion um, of baseball is a manly game with a uh, kind of growing nationalism in the late 19th century and the professionalism, the changing economy of the United States. So, um, and I associate it um, explicitly. He wasn't completely responsible um, for this, but, but I think he articulated it. Um, uh, Albert Goodwill Spaulding, the sporting goods magnet, and he was a, uh, a very gifted pitcher for the um, Boston Red Stockings and the Chicago White Stockings and uh, was instrumental in um, organizing the National League and basically professionalizing baseball and exporting it and and taking a a tour of American baseball players around the world um, in 1897, basically to places in the old British Empire. Um, to try to, um, I think, drum up business for a sporting goods company, but also, um, you know, as as a, a way of of kind of um, colonizing uh, nation, undeveloped nations, nations with uh, men of color, and showing them that this was the way to become civilized. And you know, here was a an orderly, rational, civilized, utterly American game. And um, Spalding became quite fanatic at at claiming that the game was a natural American game, indigenous to American soil, invented by American boys, and uh, uh, denying that there was any connection with anything English and uh, certainly with anything feminine. So um, there was actually an incident when his traveling team returned to a, a victorious dinner at Delmonico's in New York um, to, and to celebrate this um, exportation of the American game of baseball. Uh, There was a banquet, and uh, Theodore Roosevelt was there. Mark Twain was there. It was star-studded. No women, of course. And somebody, uh, actually Henry Chadwick, who was an early figure, an Englishman who was an early figure in in bringing 
actually developing the game of baseball in the United States. He had uh, immigrated from England. And he said, you know, baseball is related to rounders. He said that out loud (laughs) at at this banquet. (laughs) And there was an uproar. You know, I think by then the guys had had a few drinks in them, you know, and they were, it was, you know, a a boisterous, happy affair. And and they started banging on the tables and saying, no rounders, no rounders, no rounders. You know, it was, it was, uh, um, horrifying that somebody could actually associate the American game with an English game, much less an English girls game. So at that point, I think Spalding thought that he really wanted to um, come up with um, an official history of the American game. The game was getting claimed as America's national pastime. It was getting professionalized. There was money involved. So you weren't going to have America's national sport be associated with femininity in any way. And he put together a commission and basically told them what to write, and they came up with this myth of um, uh, of, of Abner Doubleday, who was, uh, you know, inventing this game. He was at that point a, a war hero from the Civil War and the Mexican War, so he was sufficiently manly. He was a general. And they gave him credit for inventing the game. And he later said he had nothing to do with it at all. He'd never even played baseball. (laughs) So in looking at, uh, I want to go back to the early 20th century, and you have some great anecdotes about, uh, particularly at colleges and universities, where these uh, women would be playing on the green and uh, uh, the university officials would, would shut down uh, the girls' team, and uh, so you mentioned Spalding, and Spalding stated explicitly that baseball was a game for for building manliness. But when yeah. these uh, university officials and others excluded or, or banned girls from playing baseball, they typically cited health reasons. Correct? Yes. Yeah, well, yeah. They, um, yeah. There's some hilarious stuff, actually. I, I mean, I think. <laughs> I think you you might be referring to the, there was one game in 1904 at the University of Pennsylvania, and um, it was a pickup game of of coeds, um, you know, men and women undergrads playing in the university quad, surrounded by um, faculty offices and administrative offices. And uh, here are these adults in their offices, men, obviously, because the women, uh, you know, were not in that position at, at that time. And they hear this uproar from out in the quad, and it's that a girl on one of the teams, they were mixed teams, got the best hit of the game, a, win- a game-winning double. And, the, you know, there was bedlam. All the students were, you know, ecstatic, as, as only 20-year-olds can be <laughs> when something like that happens. They're yelling and screaming and cheering. And, you know, this girl had hit the ball f- further than anyone else. And the university officials came down, and they banned women from playing baseball at the University of Pennsylvania. And they told the men that they could no longer play on the quad. They would have to play on the athletic fields. So, you know, I mean, the the moment when it's clear that girls can play or that women can play is often the moment when, um, uh, you know, the long arm of the law comes crashing down. Um, that, so, and, and that, I try to figure out what was so problematic about that, that they had to ban women from baseball. And I think maybe at that point, it had to do with um, the kind of scandal of seeing young men and women 
playing together and um, being exuberant together. I think that maybe seemed a little uh, promiscuous or something. You know, that that was something that that shouldn't be allowed to happen. Um, later on, uh, I, uh, maybe you're thinking of the the Little League lawsuits. There's a chapter in the book about um, 1973 um, when girls sued. One girl uh, specifically was the first um, Although that's been contested too, there. But but there were several lawsuits, and Maria Pepe was a ten-year-old who had been playing little league, and um, playing. You know, her team, her coach, her team, her community didn't. You know, she was doing just fine, and then little league baseball central office got wind of it and said that they would uh, close down the charter for that particular high school is Hoboken, New Jersey. Um, if they didn't get the girl off the team, there were no girls allowed in little league baseball. Um, and in, in little league's charter, it, uh, it, it explicitly stated that, that the base little league existed to build the qualities of citizenship, sportsmanship, and manliness. And, um, so it wasn't for girls and that no girls were allowed. So the National Organization of Women took up the cause. This was um, right after Title IX passed, but before enforcements were in place. And um, they actually had to use the 14th Amendment rather than Title IX, but they won the lawsuit. But in the meantime, the arguments that Little League Baseball came up with to justify excluding all girls from playing baseball with boys were um, that girls' bones would break more easily than boys, and the boys were obviously going to break the girls' bones playing baseball. The The argument was that baseball was a contact sport. That's since been thrown out. Um, medical experts were, were brought in by both sides, but um, the experts from Little League Baseball actually worked for, one worked for the Philadelphia 76ers, and he said there's there's no evidence that girls 8 to 12 have bones that break any Quicker, any quicker than boys who are 8 to 12, and in fact, if anything, they're more flexible. Um, there was an argument made by Little League Baseball, um, and they and they were Little League Baseball was using a, a kind of suspicious study for that. It was some study that had been done. My God, on, I can't. I, I say this, and it's so hard to believe on Japanese cadavers, uh, <laughs> ages 8 to 80. And uh, that was, you know, the the evidence they used to to show that uh, um, girls' bones broke more easily. Uh, there was a another argument they made that girls would get breast cancer from, and they put this. Uh, it was not too not too delicately. They said girls would get breast cancer from getting tagged out in the boobs. <laughs> And um, that was a serious argument in this court case to exclude girls from baseball. Um, there were, um, yeah, I mean, the, the arguments were 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 just extraordinary. The the coaches would all be men. It was assumed, and if a girl got injured, a coach might have to rub a girl's leg to make her feel better, and that would be unseemly. Or if she got hurt in the chest, he might have to unbutton her jersey. I mean, there were these extravagant reasons uh, why basically girls couldn't play because it would inconvenience the men who were coaching them. They couldn't pat them on the rear when they made a good play, which of course assumed that they might make a good play. 
So, uh, you know, I mean, it's when you look at the Little League lawsuits, you, you know that something's going on besides science, you know, to keep girls out of baseball. Mm-hmm. I want to make a detour here, uh, which is a detour you make in the book, and ask about the origins of softball. And where, so where did softball come from, and how did that sport become the standard accepted option for girls and women who wanted to play a, a, a bat and ball game? Yeah, that game was invented by um, men in right about the same time, two, two kind of parallel moments of birth. Um, one was in Chicago at the Farragut Boat Club. It was a group of young men who had gathered, um, I think young professional guys, um, uh, and they had a, a ticker tape in the gymnasium of the Farragut Yacht Club, and it was Thanksgiving, and they were gathering to hear the Harvard-Yale football game. And some were from Harvard and some were from Yale, but they were all good friends. And uh, so they listened to the game. And I can't remember who won. I think Harvard. And this was 1897. And in the kind of boisterous horseplay after the game was over, one grabbed a um, uh, boxing glove that was in the gym and threw it at another guy who grabbed a broomstick that was leaning up against the wall and swatted it away, and that was so much fun that they tied the boxing glove up uh, in its own laces and made a kind of a soft ball out of it and uh, started playing indoor baseball, they called it, and um, enjoyed it so much that one of them uh, volunteered to write up a set of rules for indoor baseball and um, it soon became, it, it, you know, they loved the game. It was, it was clearly a lot of fun, and it would enable them to play baseball indoors during these cold winter months. Um, and it kind of moved outdoors in the springtime, but they wanted to make sure that the game was not to be confused with real baseball, the manly sport, the national pastime. So they called it games like Nancy Ball, um, Sissy Ball, Panty waste, um, you know, games so that nobody would would mistake it for the masculine version of the game. And yet it was clear they loved it, and it let them play indoors. And actually, at just about the same time in Minneapolis, um, uh, the fire chief named Charles Robert um, was trying to keep his men fit during the winter months, and they were sick of calisthenics and, med- and medicine balls. And so he invented a similar game that, that would keep them moving indoors during the Minneapolis uh, winters. And um, it was, a, it, it was a, a game that caught on as a way to play baseball in the off-season. I think maybe it was, you know, because there were softer balls and smaller bats and, you know, the game was designed so you wouldn't break out the windows of the gym you were playing in. Um, and it was given these um, kind of sexually derogatory, feminized nicknames. Um, and this was an era um, at the turn of the century, the early part of the 20th century, where educators were getting the idea that maybe girls needed some exercise after all, um, and they were trying to come up with uh, exercise plans in school for girls. And uh, so it softball seemed like a natural kind of a substitute for baseball, which was becoming entrenched in its masculinity. Um, 
so, uh, you know, softball was kind of assigned to girls as girls baseball. So if I can make another detour following a, another thread you follow in the book, the exclusion of women from baseball in the United States really stands out when you look at baseball played in other countries and also the related sport, cricket in England. So could you talk about uh, women in baseball and, and women in cricket uh, elsewhere in the world? Yeah, the, um, I, to me, what was odd is that, you know, here America proudly claims, even even though it's not exactly true, you know, but claims to be the birthplace of baseball, and and certainly made it its national sport, and it was the first professional sport in the United States. So, you know, I mean, there, there are claims that can be made for the association of baseball with national identity. And, you know, that to me is is what was so puzzling, um, which is, you know, why exclude half the nation from a sport that you claim is your national sport, you know, unless you're afraid of your nationhood being associated with femininity. Um, but so there is in the United States no infrastructure. I mean, this this is what my daughter's story, and it's it's, it's not unique. Um, it's it's not nearly as exceptional as you as you'd think. Uh, you know, of of girls wanting to play baseball, and because there is no girls baseball in the United States, you know, and even after the little league lawsuits, uh, Maria Pepe, who was you know the the first plaintiff was too old to play by the time she won the lawsuit um little league baseball could have and i guess i didn't mention this when we were talking about little league earlier um except to say what their ridiculous arguments uh, to keep girls out were you know when they lost they there there were any number of options that they could have come up with one is just to graciously let the girls who wanted to play with the boys play with the boys you know, and if they weren't good enough, they weren't good enough. That's kind of the American way, you know, laissez-faire, right? If, if you can't cut it, you know, it's a, a kind of self-selection process. But they shut down the New Jersey Little League rather than let girls play in it, which is extraordinary. For a whole year, no boys in New Jersey got Little League baseball either. Um, and then they came back with Little League softball instead of Little League baseball. And essentially, softball was um, at that point institutionalized. Uh, you know, in the 1970s, instead of now that it was legal for girls to play baseball, instead of either allowing girls to play with boys or organizing girls baseball, you know, a separate um, development system for girls. They invented, or they didn't invent, they, they imposed or recommended um, Little League softball instead. And so there never has been um, a structure for Little League baseball in this country. And girls who want to play basically have to find a boys team to play on. And some girls don't want to play with boys. Some do, but they don't have the option. They don't have the choice. And um, of there is an international women's baseball circuit, and the United States fields a team, the U.S. women's national team, which is sponsored by USA Baseball in uh, uh, North Carolina, just as it sponsors the USA men's national teams. Um, 
and people, I, I'm actually, I'm, I'm writing a new book about this, this kind of follow-up to Stolen Bases is, is about this national team that nobody knows about. And the question is where they come from, because there is no women's baseball in the United States, except for these girls who are scrambling to play with boys or men. Um, and other countries that um, regularly send teams, the, the kind of powerhouse countries of the international women's baseball circuit are Japan, uh, Australia, and Canada, basically, and, then, and the United States. Um, there are also countries that come from Cuba, from Venezuela, from Puerto Rico, from the Netherlands, from India, from um, Chinese Taipei, Hong Kong, Korea. So there are all these baseball teams around the world that nobody knows about. And the, um, the top three, Japan, Australia, and Canada, with the United States usually up there battling, um, in, you know, and, you, and you don't know how, but I, you know, I know how because uh, I've seen my daughter battle to stay in the game, and she's uh, a member of Team USA. Um, the other countries have women's baseball and girls' baseball. Japan has girls' little league and um, baseball for girls in school, and then uh, actually two two teams, an A team and a B team, and they uh, they get them together. They f- they form a national team and they play together all year round. So they are very difficult to beat. They're um, as as the American girls call them, the Japanese machine. They're just fantastic baseball players. Canada has a system where um, the girls can play on their own teams or on men's teams. Australia has um, boys and girls playing together up until they're age 14, and then after age 14, they have a system of girls' baseball and um, and boys' baseball. They, they separate them out when they get to be teenagers, probably because the size difference matters most at that point. Um, so here are these other countries that actually support girls and women's baseball and here's the united states claiming it's their game and there's there's no place for girls to go i mean it it is a a lifelong struggle if you've got the baseball gene to find a team to play on if you're a girl um now you know how do you account for that um apart from some kind of national psychosis um I, you know, I think it's because baseball is associated with national identity. And so you asked about cricket. Um, women in England have been battling to play cricket also. And, and that may be, you know, they, they may have a struggle to play cricket because cricket is England's national game, at least, you know, according to many. Um, but nonetheless, there are laws in England that um, obligate local communities that support a cricket club to have a women's cricket club if they have a men's cricket club. So, um, you know, in some ways, the exclusion of American girls from baseball is an exception in in world sports. I mean, it just stands out as um, something that seems to me so kind of um, culturally and, and emotionally suspicious. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in looking at American baseball as unique relative to other countries that, that play baseball, mm-hmm. uh, and then in looking at sports, in particular youth sports, university and high school sports today, where you have 
uh, increasing participation by girls and and um, college women in a variety of different sports is baseball becoming even more exclusive in the sense that uh, you see fewer and fewer um, young black men playing baseball and more exclusive in a class sense. And, and you talk about this in the book of how yeah. uh, baseball is becoming privatized, that, that yeah. uh, only, only those who can afford the lessons and the elite leagues and so forth are able to advance in, in baseball. So, um, so, yeah, I guess the question for you is, is baseball becoming once again a white sport and a white rich sport? You know, I would say it's in danger of of becoming that way. It may not be, it might not be that, I'm not sure that baseball is absolutely unique. I mean, mo- it, it, the, the privatization of youth sports is, um, you know, it's a development that I don't like. I, you know, the, the idea that, and I, I think a, a number of, of scholars have, uh, done important work on this um, being critical of tracking kids at a very early age into one sport and um, getting them those private lessons um, so it's you know it's not just something that characterizes baseball although I think that the demographics for baseball uh, you know seem to be um, just tenaciously white male and wealthy i i think that is uh, a description that's a problem i'm not i don't think baseball wants it to be that way but but it is um and yet this notion of the privatization of youth sports and the kind of pre-professionalization um uh, the notion that if you are you know 12 years old and and um haven't had a private coach and been playing on tournament teams um it's almost too late for you in almost any sport and uh, there's a kind of a different track, I think, for um, uh, sports that are more associated with um, poor demographics, uh, with, with poverty. Basketball, um, I think, has um, its way of reaching out to poor kids and, and developing them at a very early age. So you get, you know, these kids who are being drafted by the pros when they're 18 or 19 or 15, you know, and, and uh, offered multi-million dollar contracts. Now, that that doesn't seem to happen with the girls. So, um, you know, I'm kind of rambling myself here, I guess, trying to find, you know, an accurate <laughs> answer, which is that on the one hand, I, I um, regret this kind of privatization and professionalization and, and um uh, of youth sports in general, of not letting kids play. And that may be part of the problem that continues to exclude girls. I mean, there's always this this argument that people won't pay to see girls play baseball. I mean, who cares? Although, you know, it would be nice if there was public interest. But, but the idea that you're going to exclude an 8-year-old girl from playing baseball because um, there's no professional reward for her down the line um, is to me a, a you know a really kind of uh, distorted value system 
So I want to go back to uh, your first chapter when you talk about um, your daughter's experiences. And uh, I have to say, once again, having coached Little League Baseball, that the descriptions you have of the behavior of the dads and the coaches in Little League Baseball was just was just spot on. You just nailed your descriptions of these dads behind the backstop yelling instructions at their sons. And I want to ask you, you've kind of hinted at this earlier, but, but I want to ask you directly. Uh, did you find in your research and also in your daughter's experience that it's the, the dads, the dads in the dugout who are the coaches and the dads in the bleachers who oppose, most oppose, a girl playing baseball, as opposed to the boys on the field? Yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> I, there's no question. The, the, the trouble that my daughter um, encountered, the resistance uh, that, that she encountered, uh, there, there were some, and this is not universal, you know, I mean, because there were, there were also some men in the Little League who... Um, saw her talent and were, you know, gentlemen uh, it, it, at the younger levels anyway. I think the real trouble begins um, kind of after Little League at that 12 to 15-year-old Babe Ruth League where they're all getting, the boys are getting prepped for high school and the, the dads are absolutely committed to their son's future careers in baseball and high school and college and professional. I don't, you know, most of them are fantasies because, you know, how many, how many men make it that far? But, you know, the prepping for the high school is where things got very serious. So in Little League, there were, um, you know, there were dads that could appreciate her talent. I, you know, God, I remember one at bat where the, it was a kid who was probably the best pitcher in the league. He had a, you know, he was the stud. He was, uh, um, you know, the the guy, the, the boy every every other boy wanted to get a hit off of, and uh, he he was very good and self possessed and poised. And you know, this is when um, I think Lily was ten or eleven years old, and uh, it was one of those at bats, uh, you know, where he kept throwing strikes and she kept fouling him off. And I think there were I don't know fourteen or fifteen pitches in that at bat. <laughs> And you know, and people were gathering from the other diamonds, you know, to to see this this at bat which was going on forever. And finally, she got a hit off him, you know. So she she prevailed during that at bat, and uh, you know, I don't know, hit hit a ball through past the second baseman, and she runs down to first base, and she's just sitting there with the biggest grin <laughs> on her face you could imagine, and the and. The, the dads who had come by to watch the spectacle were laughing and congratulating me and just saying, great at bat, Lily. And, and, uh, so it's, you know, it's not that, you know, all dads are out to get little girls off baseball diamonds, although I think some of them are, I think that they were, you know, they, they had affection for her. She's a sweet kid, you know, as, as, you know, a lot of girls are, I, you know, I mean, the, when they're on a baseball diamond, they're, they're good baseball players, but, you know, there's that, you have to be kind of a, a gritty, admirable girl to hang in there with, you know, all these boys. So I think they had affection and, and respect for her. I think they just all expected that she would, you know, that she was gonna, a serious future softball player mm -hmm. and that that's why she was sticking with Little League Baseball. And it was, it was really after Little League that it was very clear 
that um, uh, you know, one man uh, came up to me and my husband were st- standing in the sands, and Lily had done something good. This was at the Babe Ruth level. Um, it, it just made a good play or a good hit or something. And he came up and he said, you know, she should be playing softball. And we're going, she just did great at baseball. Why are you telling us this? You know? And it was like, you know, she shouldn't be wasting her talent with boys. And I think my husband said she liked baseball. And look at, you know, she just look at what she just did. Mm-hmm. And this man literally looked at him and said, no girl will play baseball in this town, not so long as I live here. Oh, and, um, you know, it was... Um, it was pretty explicit at that point. And, um, you know, I think the boys, when they're, you know, the boys are more democratic. She's out there. They know her. She's in the dugout with them, and they know what she can do. And if she's making hits and and getting safely on base and catching the ball and throwing the ball, they're okay with it. Um, but it, it was uh, the parents, particularly the dads, it was... Another good story, when she was playing um, high school baseball, when we transferred, uh, you know, and switched to that, uh, to that poor high school um, with, the, with the academic magnet program, and, and the coach, she was a left-hander, and the coach of that team taught her how to pitch. She had never pitched. That was a position reserved for coaches' sons in the Little League. And, um, and she developed, you know, he taught her. She developed a good... Uh, good curveball and a good change up and she you know had good control so she was a good off speed pitcher and the high school team at that point had a couple of starters that could throw in the upper 80s and low 90s and they had professionals uh you know scouts out there with speed guns watching them during their senior year and and the high school coach was real smart he'd put one of these two guys in uh Jake or Jeremy and then um after a couple of innings he'd bring Lily in as the middle reliever and, you know, while these guys were throwing heat, you know, 90 miles an hour, Lily comes in and throws off-speed stuff. And she would just, um, you know, 30 miles an hour slower, she'd have the batters on the other team twisted up in knots. And so she, Lily struck out this kid who had been, you know, was one of the privileged kids on the opposing team. Had, I think our coach said that his parents had spent $60,000 in private lessons for him. And he gets up there and Lily strikes him out. And, um, and it was, it was on the evening news. I kind of felt bad for the kid actually. And the um, mother was so appalled that she followed Lily to the team bus. And Lily looks, there's this woman following her. And as Lily's about to get on the bus, she says like, what? And the woman says, you struck out my son. And, um, Lily's teammates are laughing, and Lily just said, uh, I'm sorry? <laughs> she wasn't sure, you know, how to respond. <laughs> and, you know, the, and the kid got got so kind of, it was in his head that this girl had struck him out that he insisted, uh, told his coach he wanted to face her the next time she pitched, and she struck him out again. So, you know, I think it, it's, it's at that kind of adolescent level where um, – it's the parental resistance. Although I, you know, I have to say there were plenty of moms that came up to me and just said, "Good for Lily. I so admire her." And my younger daughter, you know, the, uh, whoever, you know, Jake's young sister, and Jake was on the baseball team, um, uh, you know, so admires Lily. And uh, it, it was real important that Lily hung in there. And I think that um, a, a lot of um, 
the adult women in the community, um, you know, recognize that. Um, and not so many, not so many men. So, the, so the man who came up to you and your husband in the stands and then, and then dads you described behind the backstop, these would be examples of, I, I guess you would say men behaving badly. And, yeah. uh, and so these would be the men, in, in the case at the game in the stands, these are the men who perpetuate and maintain the exclusion of, of girls from baseball. And I, I want to ask, get around really to the, the big question that we've been coming to throughout the interview, why are they doing that? And I want to I throw in a wrinkle, mm-hmm. thinking of, uh, you know, in coaching, I've encountered these dads at the field. And many of these dads also have daughters, and the daughters might play soccer, they might play lacrosse. In my area, girls' water polo is becoming a popular high school sport. At colleges across the country, women's rugby teams are gaining popularity. So these are all rough, dangerous sports with a lot of injuries, but it's accepted that girls can play them. But yeah. girls can't yeah. play baseball. And so coming back to this question, what do you think is going on? What is it that with this dad behind the backstop that he'll allow his daughter to play lacrosse, mm-hmm. but he won't allow his daughter to play baseball? Okay, let's, let me throw out a few thoughts about that. Um, you know, one thought, although it's kind of intangible, but I do kind of follow this this line of argument throughout my book, um, is that baseball is in some way sacred um, in a way that other sports aren't. It's it's special. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, we love football now, and, and, you know, the Super Bowl is, you know, the biggest draw in the history of the world, you know, on Super Bowl Sunday. and But I, I would still argue that um, historically speaking there's a kind of an emotional connection mm-hmm. with um, uh, American history and baseball and that its association with national identity um, has 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 been associated with American boyhood and manhood and so there's a there's a kind of an emotional tie maybe that men aren't willing to share, you know, and, and, um, I say that not as though they're like malicious or something, just, you know, some kind of deep, um, you know, we talk about sons and fathers and this kind of sacred bond of, you know, the dad taking his son out to play catch with him when he gets of a certain age. And, and, uh, sometimes I think of, you know, me, playing catch. I mean, here I am, a frustrated baseball player who never got as far as Little League. <laughs> yeah. And I've got this daughter who loves baseball, and, uh, you know, I've been playing catch with her um, all her life. And I think, gosh, sometimes I think, we must look a little strange. You know, I mean, here we are doing the father-son thing, only we're the mother and the daughter. And it's not even, you know, her father and, and, and her. Um, so you know, there, there's some kind of, I think, deep emotional association with boyhood and manhood. And, you know, I think that maybe gets in the way. Um, and to that, I just want to say, okay, can we get over it? You know, I mean, can we move on? And and there is room for mothers and daughters in baseball as long, you know, as well as fathers and sons and its family values and American history and culture and why not? 
include the girls and the women because women have loved baseball all along. <clears throat> so that's that's one thing that I think uh, contributes to the persistence of of excluding girls. Um, the other thing, <clears throat> and um, and that that's the whole idea of sex segregation in sports. The idea that we as as a, a nation and a culture and and maybe it's universal but it's almost like adhering to some victorian ideal of separate spheres um we let girls play sports now um but the assumption is that they're not going to be as good as boys and so they need to stay in their own segregated arenas um so that, you know, it's not that a girl who plays water polo or lacrosse um, or basketball or soccer um, might be interested in and good enough to play with boys. And the good enough part, I think, doesn't necessarily have to do with size or muscle mass um, or or body type, although it might, but I don't think that the scientific evidence is in on that. Uh, you know, I think to me it has a lot to do with um, culture and nurturance, and the fact that when a little boy is born, whether or not he's got what it takes to be an athlete, the disposition, the body, the temperament, he's going to get some stuff on his little pajamas and in his baby room that, <laughs> that you know, he, he's getting baseballs and footballs and, and basketballs and soccer balls, whether he wants them or not, you know, and it's, it's up to him to say, mom, dad, I'm just not interested. And um, girls don't get that. You know, a girl has to say, I want to play. I want to play. Um, and, you know, and then even if, you know, if, if the mother or the father is athletic and, and wants to encourage their daughters from an early age to, to play a sport, you know, culturally, it's, it's just not that kind of encouragement. Um, and so I think girls have some catching up to do, you know, it, it, as a whole. But the notion that no girl should be playing with boys um is is uh you know to me that's problematic to me it, it would we'd be a healthier nation if we let our kids play together and um, learn to see that not every boy is a better athlete than every girl now taking that one step further to baseball specifically because you know I think baseball is a part of the problem uh where we we don't want to see boys and girls competing against each other um and we say it's because the boys are going to hurt the girls. But my sneaking suspicion is because we're afraid the girls might be better than the boys. Mm -hmm. And um, with baseball specifically, because I think baseball is the only sport, you know, it, it, there's some differences. There are differences in the rules in girls and women's lacrosse and men's lacrosse and, and uh Basketball used to be more dramatic, but, you know, there are some differences. But baseball, it's not only sex segregated, it's sports segregated. You know, there's one version, softball, which is girls' baseball. And if you ask anybody off the street, that's, you know, why? what's softball? Well, it's girls' baseball, you know, half of them will say. Um, 
Or why don't girls play baseball while they get softball? Um, So we segregate them. And my sense about that is um, it's this double segregation. You know, on the one hand, they're not supposed to play with boys. And on the other hand, they're not even supposed to play the sport that, that we reserve for boys and men in this country. And my hunch is that baseball is not a contact sport and is not as dependent um, on size for excellence. And so, in fact, maybe the girls could outplay the boys, and that's, I think, uh, it, uh, people are very fearful of that. Uh, we, as a culture, have a, a lot invested in the notion that, at least physically in sports, boys and men are supposed to be better than girls and women. And if we let girls into the baseball game, uh, they might prove that that's not the case. And I think, uh, as a a culture, we don't want to see that. So we're almost out of time, and I want to ask you, you've mentioned you're working on the new book about uh, uh, the women who play on the U.S. uh, women's national baseball team, which your daughter also plays on. And uh, I want to ask, with with the interviews that you've done with these players, do these women have a sense that they're building something? Are they hopeful that in the future there will be more opportunities for girls to play baseball? Yeah, I think that it, it's such a, uh, you know, you'd think when I started off doing my research for this book, I thought, oh boy, I don't want to write a depressing book about women who have battled. (laughs) It's like, excuse me, could you, I'm sorry, could you tell me your horror story? Could you, you know, and, and that, that wasn't the book I wanted to write. And luckily when I start talking to these women, many of whom I've gotten to know through my daughter's involvement with the U S women's national team and team USA, um, you know, they're great young women they're 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 smart they're you know they have to be they can't get paid for playing baseball they all have to get an education you know and and so they're remarkably articulate upbeat group Uh, they're they're a happy gang of spectacular athletes and they really range in age there are teenagers who are still playing high school baseball there are college women fewer of them play there are very very few women who make it to play college ball um but uh many of the women in their teens and early 20s or you know who are not yet done with college are hopeful about that and the high school players i think many of them really want to play baseball in college um the the uh women in their 20s in their you know kind of athletic primes 20s and early 30s are just love the game and are happy to just be playing and um they're actually there's some veterans of the silver bullets the oldest members of team usa are are now in their mid to late 20s and um i think um one expressed a little bit of jealousy that the younger players had more of a chance to really um go further with baseball than she did but um you know, I think, um, and and the ones that age, I always ask them the question, um, do you think that if you were a man, would you be playing professional baseball? And each one of them, not a moment's hesitation, they say, well, I sure hope so. Yeah, I think so. You know, and I've talked to some of them that have actually retired and, and are now coaching uh, with um, USA Baseball. And... Um, 
so yeah, I think that they're. Uh, I I should say that they love the game. I very few of them regard themselves as political activists in any way. You know, I think that that they are upbeat and positive because they do see this as as uh, part of um, a project to build women's baseball. And um, uh, you know, they're not angry, disgruntled women. They're they're upbeat about um, the inevitability uh, of um, the younger ones taking it a step further than the older ones were able to. But the older ones, um, you know, in just not doubting their athletic ability. And, you know, that said, I should also say that, yeah, they don't doubt their athletic ability, which is extraordinary because... Um, you know, I have seen personally through my daughter and, and uh, you know, now, now talk to um, quite a number of the women who play that level baseball. And um, there's always um, these moments when all of them at one point or another have faced some sort of rejection um, trying to play baseball with men and the frustration of trying to find a good, a team of women who are as good as they are to, you know, play competitively. And the, the, um, the strength not to internalize that message that you're just not good enough to play with the boys is brutal. You know, I mean, it, it, um, so it really takes some overcoming, um, to, to be able to own your own confidence and your ability when, um, at, at some point or another, every single one of these girls and women has been told, you're not good enough. You know, what makes you think you can play with boys? So you said you didn't want to write a depressing book, but I'll, I'll finish with a depressing question for you. <laughs> so what happened to your Oakland A's this year? <laughs> God, yeah, that's depressing. <laughs> You've been listening to an interview with Jennifer Ring about her book, Stolen Bases, Why American Girls Don't Play Baseball, published in 2009 by the University of Illinois Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from public policy to religion. If you like what you heard here, please subscribe to New Books and Sports at the iTunes Store and link to us at our Facebook page. My name is Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.